Nice. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I'm. It looks like everything's working on my end. Okay. Cool. We're good to go then. Okay, All right. Excellent. Uh, let's get started. <laughs> we'll get started. Yeah. I'm. In, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I'm. All right. <laughs> I have my coffee. I'm. Sunday morning. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining night. us. Yeah, Saturday night for us. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us for a special bonus episode of Dance Robot Dance. Uh, I'm your host, Mark, for the, tonight. Um, I'm here with Tim. And his pitcher of cocktail. And as his usual. pitcher of cocktail. Um, <laughs> and uh, my, our special guest this week from uh, South Korea in Seoul, my little brother Paul, has finally joined us to do an episode of the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome, Paul. Oh, yeah, thank so you. Say hello to Paul. Hello. If he was if he was in North Korea, he probably wouldn't be able wouldn't to get outside internet access. <laughs> yeah, probably not. It might be a different I, internet. Yeah, it might be like a little like tinfoil satellite like underneath <laughs> the or something. But pirate yeah. pirate broadcast or some shit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How close are you to the to the what demilitarized zone or whatever? I'm within artillery range of North Korea, I believe. Ah, so if well, they launched a nuke, I'd be I'd be pretty screwed. But you know, it's okay. Aren't we all within artillery range? Like, don't they have like I don't know if they have like intercontinental. They're trying. Like, They're trying. Yeah, I don't think they have ICBMs, but I think people in Korea and like China gets nervous or Japan gets nervous when they start launching nukes. But yeah. I don't think they could hit the continental. Like, I don't think they could hit North America. <laughs> no, that that's the fear, though. Every time they launch one of the big like uh, missiles and you hear about it on the news, like South Korea just kind of like sighs and rolls its eyes and says, OK, North Korea. And yeah. uh, CNN is like, oh, my God, there's another missile and they're trying to launch it. And we're all just like, uh, it just means it's Tuesday, you know, <laughs> so. yeah, Kim Jong Un's in his bunker, just fucking furiously masturbating as the rocket launches. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> probably like the the rocket it fails every time so <laughs> <laughs> do you guys see the video of uh was it kim jong-un like touring a lubricant factory yeah yeah, yeah. and he was just like super fucking excited it was like yeah. nobody gets that excited about lube buddy yeah one of my favorite tumblers of all time is kim jong-un pointing at things and it's just <laughs> uh, all the photos of him pointing at things in various parts of north korea it's, it's so good it's and so i'm sure good. he just looks like like eminently thrilled in every pic picture yeah just like like a pudgy little kid on christmas morning you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> didn't he just have like his uncle killed or something like that not too long yeah. ago too that's yes. that's the implication yeah was, yeah. yeah wasn't that the one where like the the girls uh like sprayed him in the face thinking that they were on like a reality game show or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. and in reality they sprayed him with like fucking a deadly toxin or something yep yep and that's par for the course for like north korea and stuff Jesus like Christ. and south korea has its own political scandals happening like they just impeached their president because of like yeah she was a and fe female president correct Female president Park Geun-hye uh, was uh, her father was a dictator here in South Korea and was assassinated um, because of his ties to this weird cult. And the his daughter, who became president as well, um, she was still in contact with people from that cult. And the, the cult leader, um, which is the daughter of the ex cult leader um was like telling her what to say in speeches how to dress and there was a huge corruption scandal and now they awkward her. on a scale of like 
the, the the crazy cult that you have in your back, like Tim's got next door to him in Atlanta versus <laughs> the like Om Shamrikio kind of like cult. Like, where does this cult fall on? <laughs> uh, like there are quite a few cults in Korea and most of them are like somewhat Christian based. Um, this one is like your pretty typical Jim Jonesy kind of like hedonist. So more so more like David Koresh, like kind mm-hmm. of thing. Than, yeah. Okay. So it's like not a super scary cult but it's definitely not like not who you want informing your government policy uh, <laughs> especially since they were like a lot of like um uh, male prostitutes came out and said like hey they were like paying for our services with government money and stuff like that it was it was just a shit show and like the uh but the korean people rallied pretty well and the the peaceful protests that happened in seoul were some of the biggest in the world it was a, quite a sight to see so that was cool so why would you expect that like korean politicians wouldn't be paying for prostitutes with government money when no other country in the world's politicians well, this don't is, pay for prostitutes with government money. This is exactly the thing, is that it's the same as Republicans in the United States. They run on family values. Like, they're, this is a very conservative country sexually, especially sexually. Um, so uh, when these kinds of things come out, it's like huge scandal because it's like, at this point in like Western culture, when a Republican uh, politician, a family values Republican politician comes out or gets caught with like a young boy in a motel room, it's kind of like not again. But here in Korea, it's still kind of like, <laughs> what? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's Fair enough. We're learning things on Dance Robot Dance tonight. Yeah, we're educating you tonight. We yeah. didn't actually bring Paul on to discuss Korean politics. And, uh, yeah, no, we totally did. This is uh, very different than our normal episodes. We're going to do an episode on fucking uh, South, Southeast Asian politics. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Um, yeah, because I really wanted to talk about cults on the uh, the podcast at some point. It was a good <laughs> topic that I put forward. <laughs> There's Falun Gong here, too, if you want to talk about that. I can totally... I, yeah. <laughs> At this point, I'm pretty much I'm just kind of like I just want to rip off last podcast on the left and use their mm-hmm. format and just do, <laughs> do those episodes again kind of thing. Uh, that's cool. Um, but no, the actual reason we wanted to get Paul on the podcast was because um, he is as militant a record nerd as we are mm-hmm. and uh, has been harping on me, especially to come on the podcast and do his top 10 albums yeah. um, in light of the I fact have that opinions. Yeah. <laughs> And we're very excited to hear them. But uh, remember, we want people to continue to listen to the podcast. So relax your balls, Pete. Relax your balls. <laughs> right. I'll try not to alienate the cis straight white male audience of your podcast, which is yeah, probably, that is probably the vast majority of our fan base. I think <laughs> okay. I don't know. I think uh, I think most of the people I know that are listening to the podcast are girls or women that I know. So like mom and like Paul's friends and like. Fair enough. Some of my some of my coworkers and all seem to be women that I know that listen to the podcast. So and they'll appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, with the exception of people that are uh, related by blood to you, Mark, the people that are most active on our Facebook page are definitely fucking cis hetero males. White that's males. true. That's true. Actually, that's very <laughs> like, true. Like Spears and uh, what Michael Taylor and Blake and Sam. They might not be straight. You don't know. Like, do you know them well enough to say that they're straight or not? I I know. I know Blake well enough to know that he probably skews a little to the queer side, but is definitely married to a girl. 
to be fair, <laughs> don't we all kind of skew a little to the queer side sometimes? Try to make yeah. our docking sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> haven't yeah i was just gonna i was just gonna reference our forbidden love tim so, yeah, that works out really well well i was just gonna say everyone's seen thor so you know like every male skews a little bit one way or the other like everyone <laughs> everyone has that one celebrity crush where you might go for them like if i had to if i had to fucking avenger it would definitely be uh tony stark yeah mm-hmm. rdj all the way yeah uh, he'd be fun though <laughs> yeah Probably got some fun, like fun, like little gadgets and stuff he could break out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we really talked on the podcast about my my extreme like sexual tension, like kind of relationship with the Rock either. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, how is it's, that? It's one? definitely been an undertext. It, it has it has come up subtext. a couple times, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some subtext. Because <laughs> Dwayne, and whenever we can mention Dwayne, I will mention Dwayne. <laughs> yeah, so dreamy, <laughs> so is. dreamy. He was so good um, on it too. Mm, so good. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, really? You you saw Moana, Mark? Yeah, Queen's in it. I haven't watched it yet, and I'm the fucking Disney. I'm our resident Disney nerd, but I know. But Dwayne's in it, so I had to watch it. I've seen every movie he's ever made. I shit you not. Like when I say that, I've seen everything he's made. So even the really fucking terrible ones. Oh, especially the really terrible Uh, ones. I have a a special fondness for those (laughs) because I find it. It's a sign of how much I enjoy him that I will sit through those movies and still probably take some kind of joy in the movie, (laughs) even though it's like it's Doom or the Tooth Fairy or something like that. I'm so like, this is a terrible, objectively terrible movie yeah. but i still want to watch it because i love him so much yeah speaking so. of doom uh i know we're not really doing news this week but this is just one i had to fucking bring up i posted it on the facebook page was apparently a fucking assassin's creed is getting a goddamn tv show didn't that movie flopped all to fucking yes. shit yes no. it was fucking horrible nobody i talked to liked it at all and now they're giving it a tv show I think that this is a becoming a pretty common thread in like properties that are like pretty well established, especially like in other media like books or video games. Like if it fails as a movie, they still could salvage it as a series. Not that I'm excited about the concept because <laughs> like the movie was so bad and <laughs> Especially with that level of acting talent being wasted so horribly, it was such a loss, um, considering everyone was really expecting it to be the first good video game adaptation. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the cast was fucking stellar. Yeah, Marion Cotillard and uh, Fassbender, Fassbender and Michael K. Williams. and um, yeah. Amazing. But uh, so I... Given like how big the universe of Assassin's Creed is, I could see it translating better to a series rather than a movie, just because movies are so condensed. Um, That being said, though, like if it's the same creative team that did the movie, I want no part of it at all. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, you posted the uh, you posted the the Justice League thing, too. I did. Yeah. I haven't been on Facebook today, so. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, it looks pretty good. There's some really good moments in it, I'll say. I mean, I, I reserve judgment on the movie, but I mean, uh, there's some really good like sort of character interaction. I mean, I think they're definitely trying to cash in on the uh, or uh, or skew harder towards the MCU stuff and uh, yeah. maybe try and make it a little lighter, which is probably good as long as they do it right. You know, and they don't mm-hmm. just fuck fucking you know try and shove jokes into it for the sake of jokes. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, I don't know. I, did, I didn't like hate the trailer. I didn't love the trailer. I'm, I, I, again, I'll reserve judgment until I get a chance to sit my ass into a movie theater seat and sit through the two and a half hour thing. It yeah. still had a real Snyder like look to it. So I was kind of like, hmm. Like it's very dark, but still very slick. And I was just like, that's strange. But anyway. It, it did, but I feel like if it didn't, it would, it would be confusing, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't fit with any of the other movies. Um, you know, like Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman and whatever Wonder Woman ends up being, although it also looks like it's going to have a lot of that Snyder sort of stylistic influence, even if the plot isn't. So uh, I feel like that's sort of the style they've set up for the universe. And if they are going to back away from it, they have to do that gradually rather than doing it all in one shot. Yeah, agreed. I'm kind of hoping that if they ever get that Flash movie off the ground, that'll be the one that really takes the furthest step from it, because I don't feel like the Flash should have that. Yeah, it'll really depart in terms of tone. Yeah, I think the t- totally the Flash should be like. I just want it to be the TV show, but like with a big, <laughs> yeah. big budget. So I don't know. Yeah. But that's whatever. I thought yeah, the trailer but, was cool. But the Flash really should be like the DC equivalent of Spider Man, almost right? Like kind of yeah, a little bit more fun. The rogue, the rogues gallery is really fun in the the Flash universe. Like really straight. I don't even. Yeah. I'd almost argue Flash could be totally much lighter than Spider Man. Even like Spider Man, like is more fun and bouncy and stuff like that. But he his stories tend to be more. Yeah, emo. I don't know, like, yeah, emo, <laughs> Flash yeah. would be more like, or I think should be tonally like more wholesome uh, and, and like less sort of like sarcastic than Spider-Man, Spider-Man. tends to be usually. Mm-hmm. Um, like it would be like, you know, maybe maybe putting him in really dark situations, but his like, you know, boundless enthusiasm and optimism uh, shining through kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Um, why don't we just like hop right in since uh, otherwise we'll sit here and talk about nerdy stuff all night <laughs> yeah. um, as we usually do as we usually do and not and get into it. And I know Paul's going to want to talk at nauseum about his uh, <laughs> about his albums. So right. we're going to we're going to leave. I'll, I'll lead you through it. Uh, let's go. Let's just start right off and we'll go from number 10 to number one. Um, so what is your number 10 favorite album there? My number 10 favorite album is Aaliyah's self-titled third album. Um, this album came out uh, in around 2000, 2000, yeah, around 2000, um, and was kind of a kind of stark experimental departure for her. Um, Aaliyah was kind of a rising star at this point. This is around the time she made Romeo Must Die and uh, that god-awful Queen of the Damned movie. (laughs) I forgot she was in um, Romeo Must Die. I remember, I always remember her, her, the quintessential shame being Queen of the Damned, like being stuck in that monstrosity. (laughs) And she was arguably still the best part of that movie, considering she was actually putting forth some effort while the rest of the cast was sleepwalking through that. Is it a check off? I'm going to check off a fucking dance robot dance bingo card piece, but I'm going to say that's damning it by faint praise. Yeah. Her performance, yeah. So. yeah. I, I would, I would definitely agree with that. But at the same time, like she was, she was definitely uh, taking off at this point. And what, because Aaliyah was always kind of like, the cool R&B chick uh, among like a lot of pop stars that were out in this era, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, um, even Destiny's Child were still very much on the pop end of things. And Aaliyah was like this 
cool R&B singer who was breaking into the mainstream. And uh, this was this album was produced by Timbaland and Static by Playa. Um, and then tragically, after this album was released and she was three singles in, she, she died in a plane crash. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was like and that was really like she was like at, went out on top kind of thing. Yeah, it was really tragic considering like she was actually in talks with Trent Reznor to do a collaboration because she was a huge fan of Trent. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, Trent Reznor deciding to do a collaboration with somebody like talking about it yeah. happens a lot <laughs> when they actually go through. Yeah, they usually don't is kind of what I'm trying to get at, because and and it's still not that rare. Trent fucking collaborates with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, but but not a lot of R&B artists. No, that's true. But it is usually him bringing people into the studio to play drums for him or something like that. And that's what Mm -hmm. he calls a like collaboration or whatever. Having a Trent Reznor produced track with Aaliyah's vocals on it would have been something special, I think, because I think that of all the uh uh, artists on my list. She is probably the most typical pop star of the bunch, and she has a really beautiful voice. Uh, and one of the reasons that I chose this album is mostly because of her delivery. Um, she sings so well, and the production on it just complements her voice so wonderfully that I just I could I can put this on at any time just to enjoy that sound, pretty much. Okay. So what do I usually ask when we do these things? So like, where did you, where did you discover that album? Um, being a like gay teenager in St. Catharines, like I was a little bit ashamed of like my love of pop music. Um, cause I listened to a lot of the stuff you listen to Mark. Uh, and I felt that that was a little bit more socially acceptable. So, but I would, I'll, I would keep my ear to the ground online for, um, like more critically acclaimed pop artists, I guess, so that I could like use that as an excuse to listen to it. But I've always like uh, the Rolling. I remember Rolling Stone giving this a really uh, glowing review, and so I listened to it, and I just immediately fell in love with it. I almost feel like you should say like being the gay teenager in St. Catharines. <laughs> at least at that point in time, I doubt there was very many out. Uh, out and I wasn't even I wasn't even out at that point. So Fair it was enough. like my my family pretty much knew. But like it was pretty much point. pretty much means like we knew. So that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, but it was uh, yeah, she she was cool. She was accessible and she was like, like chill enough and not poppy enough that um, people would be like, oh, I don't understand why you like her. Like, why are you listening to this, like, cheesy pop star like Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera? You couldn't get away with that. But with Leah, like, so few people had actually listened to her um, at that point that, because uh, she was only really popular sort in, of like, underground or whatever. Yeah, urban R&B scene. Like, before yeah. she was getting produced by um, R. Kelly, and then she got picked up by Timbaland and Missy Elliott. Um, as a yeah, <laughs> they were actually she was 15 or 16 when her first album got released with R. Kelly as the producer. And there's rumors that they were 
together. You saw him peeing on each other. He, he, he may have peed on her. Is what you're trying to say? I don't want to like. Uh, I don't want to besmirch the memory of Aaliyah because I do love <laughs> her. But I'm like, you know, it's our Kelly, and God only knows what he did. It's our Kelly. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's pretty interesting that this is, as far as I can remember, I don't. I think this is the first R&B album or like hip hop or anything that we've had uh, on our any of our lists. And I think it's interesting that it's not like like the ones that I would probably. Um, assume that people would have on like their top tens would be shit like uh, the miseducation of Lauren Hill or like um, uh, Jay Z's or uh, Kanye's like graduation day or something mm-hmm. like that or like a Beyonce, or like Beyonce. So yeah. it's interesting to have Aaliyah pop up. I think there's so some. Many uh, of those. I know. I know on my list there's some Dre coming up, but that's yeah. that's just me. So yeah. yeah. Aaliyah inhabited like a really particular niche for uh, for people and still in gay culture now. She's still kind of seen as a like patron saint of coolness for like the early 2000s era, because like this was the time of like bootylicious and I'm a slave for you. So when she was (laughs) releasing this kind of stuff, especially the first single was uh, We Need a Resolution, the first song on the album, the the production was so like it was very dark. It was very mysterious. It was very cool and that's not what pop was in 2000 so uh, it was like a very countercultural album even though it was a pretty typical like she didn't actually write any of the songs on the album um, she definitely brought her style to it but the major collaborators um, were Timbaland and Static from Playa and Static from Playa also died tragically so only one of these collaborators actually sur- is surviving much to the chagrin of Chris Cornell I guess because Timbaland um, but well I don't know if it would be that it was more to the uh, chagrin of uh, Chris Cornell's fans uh, yeah. that came out I think yeah but it's uh <laughs> Yeah, so uh, this is definitely an outlier for the my the typical kind of album that I enjoy. Like I do like pop stars and I like pop music, um, but normally I enjoy pop stars who have a lot more creative control in their stuff. And Aaliyah doesn't always fit that bill, but she's just such a good performer that like this shot up to the top of my list and it was just that a really she was my first major celebrity death like I was too young for Kurt Cobain um and probably too gay for him too so I uh, <laughs> it was Aaliyah was like my first like oh my god this this artist that I really enjoy is dead now and it was very shocking and uh I think that kind of made her more monolithic in my memory i guess well plus i mean pop stars in general regardless you know i don't think we need to necessarily get into a huge debate in here about the merit of pop music but they don't usually tend to craft solid albums right like they'll put Mm -hmm. out one or two decent singles and the rest is usually fucking filler and whatever i mean that's it's been that way for a long 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 time it's kind of always been that way like in in straight pop music is the album tends to be the afterthought right like yeah really until like until the beatles came around like nobody was really crafting albums period in terms of pop music you know they would put out singles if they did put out like an lp it would be like a couple of singles and then a bunch of shit oh and or covers on top of that too yeah it wasn't generally like something that you would get a bunch of original material from it was generally covers so yeah so i mean especially you know whereas we normally skew more towards like like alternative or rock and that sort of stuff. And there is a lot more album crafting in that, in those genres, but 
when there is like a pop star or R&B or star, hip hop star that really does make a solid album overall, it really it tends to stand out even more. Mm-hmm. And and I would say front to back, this album is really solid. Like there are some tracks on it that looking back now, I wouldn't uh, say match up to the quality of the better stuff on the album. But there are like at least more than 75 percent of the album is insanely listenable, even, you know, almost 20 years after the fact. Um, my That's fa- not bad for your 10th position. Yeah, I would say so. Like it's really it's and the the highs on this album are so high for me that I just uh, it's so good. I love it. <laughs> All right. Um, so what well, you pick your one song off this record? Like what's your favorite song on the album? Um, the favorite song for this album is I Can Be. It's Aaliyah's ode to side chicks where she says that she could be the other woman in her this man's life. And it's so great because it's her most understated performance on the album. And it's got this really chunky rock guitar beat going underneath it that just uh, creates a really cool atmosphere that makes it feel really seedy, but at the same time, she's being very seductive at the same time. Uh, and I think that's quintessential Aaliyah. Like, it really, like, plays between this beautiful angelic voice and, like, the the production that kind of makes it seem a little bit more raunchy, I guess. And it's really great. It's a wonderful song. Cool. Uh, moving right along then, let's uh, let's go number nine. Number nine is Silent Shout by The Knife. Uh, oh, this is the um, this is the one that has. Oh, fuck. They're they're like major single off of, isn't it? Uh, yes, it has. We share our mother's health on it. Uh, that's I think that's probably their biggest single. Um I think I'm thinking of a different song. Hold on. Keep going. I'll look it up. Okay. Well, this is um, a Swedish brother-sister duo who make really strange, hyper-liberal electronic music. Um, And this is an album where as soon as I started listening to it, I was drawn into the atmosphere of the album because it's like what I picture it to be like to be in like Tron or the Matrix or something. It's like you're transported into like is this futuristic world as soon as you hear the opening beats of uh, the first song, Silent Shout, like really um, deep electronic percussion and these like bleepy bloop uh, computerized sounds over top of it. Um, it's a really bizarre album. Uh, it it could be considered pop electronic, but the vocals are so distorted and strange that um, it didn't sound like anything else at the time. It was really um, and now indie pop owes a lot to this album as a result, because it's like it took a lot of chances and they all weirdly paid off. Um, just a it came out around 2006 when um, and I think it won Pitchfork's album of the year for that year. Um, But it was definitely an outlier because like the electronic music around that time was more like big rock and roll esque house music. So this kind of weird understated cyberpunky album out of Sweden just came out of nowhere and everyone was kind of blown away by it. Yeah, this is one I need to check out because the knife was 
I, I've heard a lot of good things about them, but it was just at a time when I wasn't listening to a lot of new music. So it's something I should definitely go back because it sounds like it'd be right up my fucking alley. Yeah, it's like it's weird. This is probably their best album. They've released quite a few albums. I think there are they released four albums together. Um, they've uh, had solo projects after the fact. Karen Dreiger, the the vocalist, uh, the the sister du- side of the duo, uh, she has also done music as Fever Ray, which is also excellent, and you should check it out. Um, but uh, this music makes me really uncomfortable to listen to, but I cannot stop listening to it <laughs> because it's so <laughs> it's so dark and strange. But um, uh, I've actually on indie dance nights in Toronto, I've requested we share our mother's health as a dance song and like sweat it out. It's really it's <laughs> nice. a really, really strange album. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is one I'll have to go back and take a closer look at for sure. Yeah. So what is, is this another is this another like online you, you found this uh, like as you were as you were pitch pitchfork whoring back in the day? Yeah, definitely <laughs> pitchfork whoring back in the day. It was I think the uh, the first song that I heard was We Share Our Mother's Health, which is obviously my favorite song on the album. We can get right into that. But it was um, the the sounds were just so immediately like jarring and unpleasant initially. And then once, but I I gave it about 20 seconds to settle into its beat and it was so bewildering how much I enjoyed it after the fact, like there was so much dissonance and cacophony, like so many sounds that shouldn't work together that did. Um, And then these vocals came in and it's just, uh, it was shocking to hear the, these female vocals so distended and creepy. Um, I was just immediately drawn in. It was definitely, yeah, a pitchfork discovery uh, back when uh, I was sharing things back and forth with my friends in university. Yeah. I, I mean, I've definitely got stuff in my library, too, that like I love, but definitely does give like sort of unsettle me a little bit or is not, you know, super uh uh, harmonious to listen to kind of thing like uh like mindless self or yeah mindless self-indulgence jumps into my mind mm-hmm. off the top of my head that's definitely one of them i think uh yeah that's something like paul and i were talking about deaf heaven a couple weeks ago i think mm-hmm. that's something that kind of stuff or that very heavy very hard to listen to but worthwhile deep dive kind of stuff mm-hmm. yeah and like Silent Shout operates on more of a housey vibe. So like it is I think a lot of it is intended to be very danceable, um, but it's very much an album you can sit and listen to because the lyrics are kind of fun to pick apart. Um, and they like they their their later album, Shaking the Habitual, was definitely way more like staunchly um, political. Um, they they are a very political band. Um, they're kind of like the left wing of Sweden, where they were seeing the rise of fascism in Europe, and they're like, uh, no, thank you. Uh, so, sorry, I was just going back. I, l- I was listening to We Share Our Mother's Health. There's also a lot of fucking new age uh, or new wave influence in this stuff too. Absolutely. Um, for the they're more condensed. They're, they have they kind of go between these really long housey numbers, like six to eight minutes long. We Share Our Mother's Health is like their 
pop song. They had a, a song that was on the album before called Heartbeats that was pretty popular. It was, mm. That was sounded like Genius of Love, like new wave stuff from like the prime of the 80s. Like they're they're They have pretty clear influences from there. Um, but then they go really super grim, dark at the same time. Yeah. It also reminds me a little bit, which is uh, similar sort of contemporary to this, which is uh, uh, The Rapture. Mm, yeah, there's definitely some f- uh, crossover feel there, too. Yeah. Uh, the Rapture, uh, they were kind of precursors, I guess, to this uh, to Silent Shout. And then Silent yeah. Shout became kind of a precursor to the big blog house, Rocky uh, dance numbers like Justice and Simeon Mobile Disco that came after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, let's keep this little train moving. Uh, we'll go move on to your number eight album. Number eight is Modern Vampires of the City by Vampire Weekend. Oh, I love Vampire Weekend. I do, too. But um, I was really suspicious of Vampire Weekend on their first album. I was like, this is this music is very pleasant to listen to. Um, but the vocals like Ezra's vocals and the lyrical content were kind of like a little bit even too pretentious for me like <laughs> I was I, it's actually it's funny I was um before we did this episode like today I was I had a bunch of these albums spinning um because Paul had sent us his list well in advance and so I had the chance to go back and listen to some of these and I was listening to this again this afternoon while I was hunting for Korok seeds and I was like <laughs> This so sounds like a a Paul mid 2000s album where he was just indie and in university and up his own ass about like pretentious mm-hmm. lyricism and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, this is something this is a, uh, a critique of Paul's music that I will continue to throw in his face for the remainder <laughs> of the show. <clears throat> but this is where this is the first time when I was listening. To, I listened to it back to front. Like I listened to his number 10 through his number one. And I was like, as you go along and I'm like. It's this is like Paul in 2006, like the shitty indie kid who just (laughs) wants a kind of nasal vocal delivery because he doesn't really care about the technical skill involved, but wants interesting, quirky, um, probably a little pretentious lyricism. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I, don't, I don't mind that as as somebody that has been in education for a very long time and been in school for a very long time. I don't mind pretentious lyrics like I love that they have a fucking song about Oxford commas. Yeah, yeah. it's fantastic <laughs> for me. Like I was uh, this was 2009, I believe. Yeah, 2009. This album came out and uh, 2006 uh, was when their second album came out. And that's when I really felt love with vampire weekend was contra but this album just took it to the next level i think one of the reasons because like they really solidified their songcraft on this one like rostam and ezra were working so beautifully together on this album and they created some sounds that were really wonderful um while still having they seem to have a lot more fun on this album like something like diane young which is such a big like guitar like guitar song for like just so much energy while they still had these really introspective songs like uh yahe uh that were kind of meditations on god um and uh meditations on modern love too that they they really enjoy doing on their albums uh they're uh this one um 
is I think the pinnacle of their their songwriting collaboration. And it's it really was a wonderful piece of work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I love this album. I if I had to pick a vampire album, a weekend album, I think I haven't decided yet. But um, either the the Vampire Weekend or Contra will probably show up in my next, like mm-hmm. in my fifteen uh, to eleven. Um, but this is a really fucking solid album as well. And yeah, yeah, hey is an amazing song, and I'm listening to it right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I was kind of taken aback at how much I liked this album, to be honest, because I thought like because I didn't like the first album too much. I like it more now in retrospect. But the second album, like I thought was going to be the peak, like because that was I thought peak Vampire Weekend. And then uh, this album came out and it came out to rave reviews. And I was pretty still pretty suspicious of them. But like once I listened to the album, I'm like, OK, I give in. I'm a Vampire Weekend fan. It's like. It is like, it is definitely like yeah. fucking modern yacht rock, basically. Yeah, like they're yeah, super fucking preppy, and but they've never shied away from that, right? They've always no. really embraced it. And I think, you know, for whatever for whatever it is, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that I was initially I initially backed away from them because like the the first song I ever heard of theirs was Walcott, which was like specifically about going to Cape Cod, for God's yeah. sake. So um, <laughs> I was just I didn't know what to do with them. But once I actually listened to their stuff, I thought that uh, especially Ezra's lyrics were really wonderful, really good examinations on like. Being a young adult at that time um, Mm -hmm. and not having your shit figured out and still worrying about concepts like these existential concepts of God while you're still trying to just make shit work in your day to day. And I really like how that worked together. So, yeah, Um, if I had to pick a song from this album, it would definitely be Yahe, though, because it's such a big song. It's such a great uh, uh examination of like embodying what God is now in America um, and in the world in general and how we approach religion in this very secular world. Um, and the strangeness of the Yahes singing along in the chorus. Um, oh, I love it. While, oh, I love it. It's so, it's so <laughs> weird, but it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it's like, it's ethereal kind of thing. And it's, yeah, I, I love this album. And yeah. and that song especially for sure. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. All right. Uh so number seven. Number seven would be Fever to Tell by Yeah Yeah Yaz. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, now this, now we're squarely in my fucking wheelhouse. Oh, this album <laughs> destroyed my brain in two thousand three. This was at mm-hmm. the end of my uh my high school career, uh when I was uh just starting to really figure out downloading in the uh, on the internet and downloading full albums. Um I heard Date with the Night first. Um and date with the night, um, with the the screaming, the the shouting, the just cr- like ripping on the guitar and the drums, w- it just blew my mind. Karen O's vocals, I had I had not heard anything like that before. Like I'd listened to a lot of female vocalists growing up, and but I hadn't really. Uh, 
listened to a lot of female punk, like female fronted punk before. Um, I guess the closest thing I would I could consider would have been Blondie, but mm-hmm. I'd never heard some uh, like a like she devil beast screaming about like about sex and drugs and New York and all that shit the way that Karen O did. And when and her I heard vocals that are song, so distinctive too. Yeah, I've never. I, I honestly was blown away from the first listen of that song, and I had it on repeat for weeks. I remember just listening to it again and again. And when I, finally I think got I, my, I think I remember that too, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, when I finally got my hands on the whole album, I I couldn't believe how fucking cool it was. I felt really. Th- this is like as a geeky guy. I felt really fucking cool listening to this album because it was about sex and like just like doing it wherever you can. Well, it still had a like once you get to the end of the album, it has such a solid emotional ending, like this huge catharsis with the last three songs that just put it over the top. Once you mm-hmm. get into Maps, Y Control and Modern Romance, you're like, holy shit. Like all of this punk posturing at the beginning, um, which is very reminiscent of their early EPs. And then you get into these last three album, three songs of the album, which are very much, very much defined their later career. Like you can there's a like a split you can see with the IAS and it's on this album. And mm. once they um, once they got a lot of radio success with maps, um, they kind of shifted gears pretty hard. But in a good way, I think. Yeah. yeah, this is this is definitely one of the ones where I, I don't think I give you as much grief about listening to it because it was such a solid rock and roll album on top of everything else. Like, it's such a good album on top of having that, like, indie kind of credibility to it on top yeah. of everything else. Yeah, Th- this is the only album from, like, the uh, the garage rock renaissance from New York, like the Strokes, Hives, White Stripes era uh, that made it into my top ten. Um, because it holds a rather special place in my heart for a lot of different reasons. But um, this I think this one um, kind of is very different from all of those. But at the same time, definitely falls in that category. Yeah, it's got that it's got that like too cool for school kind of like mentality that a lot of those albums had. But it wears its raucous party kind of on its sleeve more than Mm -hmm. those like very stoic kind of like reserved like like the Interpol guys who are just like yeah. too and, fucking cool for school kind of thing and like and the like American punk influences for sure too yeah um, yeah it's it's got it's it reeks of like CBGBs kind of stuff like yeah but yeah. at least like the ghost of CBGBs that would have been present in like the two thousands like <laughs> what was yeah. left of that kind of like decayed New York punk scene yeah. It's worth noting too that uh, this isn't a very long album, and neither was uh, neither's Modern Vampires. Both are like around forty minutes. Yeah, they make their statements quickly. I think, yeah. and w- that's one of the reasons that um, uh, Fever to Tell I think is so listenable because I I don't think many of the songs run longer than three and a half minutes. They're all really high impact songs. Like. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them run around two minutes, like typical punk songs. And mm. then they start getting into the more indie pop 
stuff like Y Control being more surf rocky, like Pixies esque, I would say. Uh, and oh yeah, I'm Mon- listening to it. I have it on in the background right now, and I'm just like, this is such a Pixies song. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 wear their influences pretty clearly on their sleeve, and I think that that's to its benefit. Like and because it's such a fun album, and then it just knocks knocks you on your ass when Maps starts. Well, like so, the uh, yeah. the uh, the length of the songs is very much like three minutes, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes, three minutes, two minutes, two minutes, five minutes, and then it starts like that's and it starts to ramp up around track yeah. seven, uh, track eight. Like no, 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 it's yeah. five minutes, and then it's like four minutes, four minutes, and then and that's when they start romance. getting into the more like conceptual shit rather than yeah. like the, just the two minute like punk punk uh, you know rockers. Last, yeah. yeah. Because that last, the last track is, well, I think it's got a hidden track on it, but it's seven minutes, 7.30, so... So, yeah, the once No, No, No finishes, it dissolves into a lot of distortion and then maps begins in that that very iconic like like the the jangle of the guitar starts. And yeah. then and the amazing drum beat. Yeah, yeah that, that drum beat is uh, I, I can't I can't count the amount of uh, bands that I was in in that era that like would make me cover that song so they could <laughs> have like my girlfriend wants to sing maps. Can we sing maps like fine? I had to, like, I had yeah. to figure out that fucking drum beat. And I was like, this is like yeah, they're actually so you can get your dick wet tonight i'll figure out this drum beat sure absolutely absolutely (laughs) yeah yes lead singer i will totally do that for you yeah great because you definitely need my help to get laid lead singer yeah exactly (laughs) um so i'm gonna work out this weird three four fucking time beat so you can get yeah exactly um there there was not a lack of talent there it wasn't like the white stripes where like jack white had meg on drums and it was (laughs) four to the floor garbage like make this work kind of thing they actually had some very talented people in no they're band. um they're they're all excellent musicians um yeah. on top of everything else like in spite of the fact that it, i mean it's ostensibly a two-piece right like it's really just it's guitar and drums there's no yeah. bass player yeah. yeah but i don't think this they would have worked without Karano's vocals like that she was the front person of the band very much so and but and she was the lyricist uh, but yeah like they they all they all elevated each other i think for sure mm-hmm. like they're they're all the 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 guy who's the drummer oh my god i can't remember his name nick zinner is the guitarist the drummer um he is definitely not your typical punk drummer I brian think. chase is apparently brian the chase Yes. Brian Chase, yeah. Uh, he's like probably that's probably why they ended up moving into a more conceptual direction yeah. by the end of it. No, it's a great album. And this is one that I haven't. Um, it's been a long time since I've sat down and listened to it as an album. Like I've definitely listened to most of the songs on a regular mm-hmm. basis. But uh, yeah, it's one I should probably give another shot as a cohesive album. I think yeah. I, I think I know. I think I learned how to play the back half of this album on drums pretty early on like when it first came out because the first half is very much like a it is a punk blast like if this is not complicated to learn but the they get into some more intricate interesting kind of rhythms and patterns and stuff later on in the album which i find really interesting so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think paul can like paul i remember paul being very excited when he heard me playing the drum beat to this when i was trying to figure it out for whatever <laughs> reason i was well learning. and then it showed up on rock band you know and That's that was true, a big yeah that was a big thing too like um i remember picking this song on rock band while i was over at friends houses playing it because and uh they they had generally never played or never heard of it before but i was so excited to be able to like sing it or play the guitar on it or something like that that um 
it I kind of spread the joy as much as I could. Um, I'm amazed people wouldn't have heard it. Like Maps got so much fucking radio play. <clears throat> yeah, Maps was huge. Yeah, yeah. Even even me and my like meathead like metal metal whatever you want to call me at that point like I couldn't avoid Maps like it was everywhere. So yeah. yeah. And rightly so, because that's my uh, that was going to be the song that I picked for this album. I know it's it's typical for the <laughs> like because it's but it's such a huge song. It is like uh, I think it um, sh- it shocked a lot of people when it f- when people first heard it, because like, uh, yeah, yeah, as we're supposed to be the grungy art punk kids of this movement. <laughs> And when Maps came out, it was so raw and so vulnerable. Um, And like as much as like the drum beat, perfect. The guitar, yes. But I have to give props to Karen's vocals on this one. She sells it so beautifully that I like I remember after Date with the Night uh, ran its course with me, this song on repeat still to this day, I will throw it on and just be like, let the tears flow, the <laughs> sadness, the feelings, you know, yeah. it's fantastic. And it's uh, it very, yeah, it was very much became like a, an indie rock anthem for like that year for like 2004 when they released it as a signal. Yeah, absolutely. It, um, they even played, I think they played it on the MTV Music Video Awards. I remember the performance with all the red petals falling from the sky. And it was just, it was a very special moment in indie rock. That was, I think that was probably the big crossover song from this movement. Like the strokes were still like really the front runners of this, of the mm-hmm. garage rock revival. But this song became kind of iconic of that movement. I don't remember the Strokes ever having a song that like crossed over as much yeah, as these guys as did. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I I yeah. think that's probably true. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, so that's number seven. Seven. Yeah. seven. yeah. All right. So let's move on to number six. Number six would be "Apologies to the Queen Mary" by Wolf Parade. Um, this is another an album solid that, choice. Yeah, yeah, it's an awesome album. Yeah, I know, Mark, you would have appreciated this pick because but although weirdly enough, um, I think we do differ on which songwriter uh, we prefer on this album. That is true. It's definitely um, these are this is there. Who are they? Can you remind me who they are? uh, Spencer Krug and Dan Beckner are the songwriters for this album. Um, Dan Beckner um, later went on to be uh, the in the handsome furs and Spencer mm-hmm. Krug was sunset rubdown and Moonface, yeah. Um, and Isaac Brock of, uh, modest, modest, modest he produced the album. So one of the reasons I think that we both like this album is that like, there's a consistently good sound to it all the way throughout. But like you, I am very much of the Spencer Krug indie pop camp. <laughs> yeah. I remember, um, trying to listen to those sunset rubdown albums, like after, like oh, they so kind of split the, split the sheets as it were uh-huh. and being like very disheartened by what I was hearing and hearing more. And that's, that's such a weird common theme in this era too. Cause I remember there's a lot of bands that had that, like the dual role kind of like, or not dual role, but like the two guys that were kind of like together, make the band really good. Lennon yeah. McCartney. When, Lennon McCartney. Yeah, like the, it's the Lennon <laughs> McCartney effect, but it's like, yeah. this was, it, it was, it happened a lot in this era. Yeah. Especially in Canadian, Canadian indie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. but even like I remember, in, like it was around the same era where like Trail of Dead had put their 
put out source tags and codes. Yeah. And then like it was kind of the post source tags and codes where like the two guys from Trail of Dead, like I think it's Keely and Reese mm-hmm. were the two guys. And when they started not writing together, that's when the band started to kind of yeah. not work anymore. So this, well, this was also the era where like the new pornographers and stuff started breaking off and having their own like really successful and, uh, you know, they'd had solo projects before, but they hadn't really caught fire the way they did like AC Newman and destroyer and yeah. Nico and also broken social scene started doing the same thing around this time too. Yeah. yeah. Feist and metric and all the, and stars breaking out from them. Um, yeah. this, this is, I think peak pitchfork era when it comes to, to like the era oh, between yeah. like 2003, 2007, 2008 yeah. um, was when like these indie bands like started to flourish quite a lot. Um, they were headlining festivals and it was like it, uh, the uh, uh, the auteur hip hop of uh, Kendrick Lamar and Kanye West hadn't completely uh, taken over yet. Um as like the the headlining uh, feature, yeah, and so I think apologies to the Queen Mary is kind of my idea of one of these perfect Pitchfork albums. Um, it's so uh, strange and uh, so lo-fi and. Uh, has a lot of strange instruments that it pulls from, uh, especially on the Spencer Krug tracks, but they, it all seems to work together to create this like indie aesthetic, which is kind of hard to pin down or, and always has been, but it feel like when you listen to it, you can say, Oh, this is indie. Same way you listen to new pornographers. This is indie. Um, and it's all, it's all just taking what REM did and just kind of like putting a spin <laughs> on it ostensibly yeah. REM, the Pixies. Like there's a lot of, like there's a lot of clear influence. Well, I'm just saying like there's yeah. a, there's a little bit more like uh, Wolf Raid has a little bit more of that that jangly kind of pop kind mm-hmm. of influence that probably doesn't come so much from the Pixies as it comes from like REM. So. Yeah. I think that's true for sure. Um, and the with Dan Beckner kind of taking on the rockier songs um, and Spencer Krug dealing with a little bit more of the cerebral pop, it, it, it gave something it gave both camp camps of indie a lot to uh, grab onto. Like yeah. if you're more if you were more on the rock side in the like garage rock era, that's fine. If you were more on the pop side, you had something and it all kind of came together. And I, I still like the Dan Beckner songs quite a lot. Like some of them are my favorite on the album. Like this Hearts on Fire is unimpeachably a beautiful song. So good. Yeah. Um so but that being said, my favorite song on the album, Dear Songs and Do- Dear Sons and Daughters of Hungry Ghosts. Uh, one of the Spencer nice. Krug songs. That one, when I heard it, um, it was uh, it had almost like a musical stage quality to it. Like I could almost see someone tap dancing performing this song. At the same time, it was very much an indie pop song. Um, it's got a weird, like jaunty uh, drum beat to it. Well, um, yeah. Oh, and that opening. Oh, didn't mean uh, to play that on my speakers. Meant to play that on my headphones. <laughs> but it's but uh, the the opening to you you are a runner uh, is so fantastic. Like everything about this album just works so well together. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a trashy hi hat though. I don't know. I don't know what he's playing. But those <laughs> things, those those sound 
they do not sound like they were recorded properly. <laughs> and that's part of the charm of the album, I guess. And, and part of the charm of the indie movement in general was that like, like they're like the, the, the snags and quirks of it were part of what made it like that lo-fi sound that, you know, oh, it's not glossy and rock and roll. It's, you know, it's more. Yeah. A little rough around the edges. Yeah. Yeah. Quote, yeah unquote, and authentic. I mean, I, Wolf Parade's a really divisive band too, right? Because they're like there are people that just can't fucking hack uh spencer krug's vocals at all mm. and they are like my wife is one of them anytime i try and play like uh, sunset rubdown or wolf raid around her she's like nope can't do it mm-hmm. fucking veto on to the next one yeah vocals uh <laughs> vocals are something uh that's where paul and i um tend to like kind of start to diverge whereas i need to have a nice good vocalist or at least a consistently like listenable vocalist <laughs> that's not something that paul requires in his music picks uh and like to varying degrees because i like when it comes to uh pop music i definitely want a beyonce i definitely want someone who has control of their vocal range because like there's nothing else to latch onto on those songs other than the beat um but if it comes to like uh, very songwriterly auteur kind of stuff where like there's a lot more to latch onto in the symbolism and the storytelling and other parts of the performance then the the beauty of the vocals is less of a requirement but I like it, it, that does, that's not to say that I don't find these vocals to be pleasant in their own way and I really enjoy listening to Spencer Krug sing because he's got like a a raw power to him that a lot of these quote unquote bad vocalists um, kind of lean on because they don't have the, the chops to you know have more than actually sing yeah, yeah exactly well, I mean, uh, I, I'm okay with with pe- some, like not having like you know really well trained or whatever vocalist if if they're distinctive like Spencer Krug or like say like Billy Corgan or somebody like that. Oh, I'm okay. Yeah. I, I don't mind. I, I know there are a lot of people that fucking hate Billy Corgan's voice, but it's distinctive. It's mm-hmm. it like it is the Pumpkins to me. So yeah. I'm okay with it. Yeah. I just wish the pumpkins were. I don't know. They, uh, we should. We'll, we'll have to talk about them somehow. We'll have to get into a podcast at some point where we discuss that kind of band. Yeah. Where like they may not land on any of our top ten lists or, or any of our like top whatever lists. Like any of these albums or yeah. like they're not going to yeah. land into like a favorite band kind of thing. But like they're a band I have a, a very very strange relationship with. I guess is, <laughs> is the only way to put it. So um, yeah. oddly enough, there's a great line in Gilmore Girls about Smashing Pumpkins where uh, Rory says they're just not my angst, and I've never heard <laughs> such a true thing in my whole life. Like I I like some a lot of Smashing Pumpkins songs, but they are not my angst. Yeah, he, he would have angst. It's just not that kind of angst. Yeah. He it's was never anti-establishment angst or whatever. He was never he was never my guy either. Like that 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 describes it pretty well. Like he was like that that band. And for all like how good they are on a technical level and like like the the level that they worked on, like the songwriting with the Smashing Pumpkins is excellent. But it's like there's something about them that doesn't cohese as well that I find like I can find what they what I like about them. Other bands do better for me, I guess. So like mm-hmm. they've never really been like a band that I love. And I know like I've seen them like five times because I have a lot of friends that are fucking religious like crazy smashing pumpkins fans eric's one of them like eric's a nut for smashing pumpkins like really? growing up know that. In high school. yeah growing up in high school man uh melancholy all the goddamn time with him album. i like it but it was never like 
I don't know. There was so much other stuff around that same time where like I, I would rather I'd rather go Alice in Chains. I'd rather go um, Nine Inch Nails or like if you're going to go if you're going to go heavy or like you're going to go kind of uh, dissonant or something like that. Like I always thought there was better. There's a lot of bands that did a lot of what they do better than they did. So, yeah, yeah Mel- Melancholy is sitting somewhere on my long list, so it'll probably show up somewhere in like my top 50 or so. Um, Good. Then we can we'll maybe, talk about maybe it then. In my top like uh, top thirty because that was that was a really phenomenal album and a great concept album. Mm-hmm. Good. We're gonna have to book off a lot of time to talk about the Smashing Pumpkins then because I have, <laughs> I have things more more to say about them than. Yeah. I think we should probably get into here. So. I have to say, so far, I have to say that Paul's sort of striking me as a weird mix of uh, mine and Mark's and Christie's musical tastes. Like he. It, with Christy, like you clearly st- uh, veer more towards the uh, lyrics and storytelling and stuff like that, which I don't think Mark and I put as much stress on. Mm-hmm. You clearly steer uh, pretty heavily towards my like indie pop sensibilities mm-hmm. and then uh, towards Mark's like harder sensibilities as well. So, yeah, um, you're like you're like square in the middle of our like fucking trying diagram. If yeah. you look at um, and especially when I when we're looking at Paul's his broader list, like his top 50 list. Um, His top 10 is where he and I are like, we don't see eye to eye at all in his top 10 for the Mm -hmm. most part. But when it gets into some of the stuff that's further down the list, um, there's a lot of stuff where it's like you can see my older brother influence on my little brother kind of thing, (laughs) I think. Oh, yeah. So um, I uh, attribute my uh, my musical taste to three things. Um, You, Mark, uh, mom and much music. And <laughs> like the uh, growing up, like especially with weirder, much music programs like the Wedge, and uh-huh. uh, but also like the like the Countdown and the pop, uh, like the pop stuff too. All yeah. of it kind of converged into me like being super interested in music, having it be a really important part of my my every day. And so, and then when the internet came, it was when I was you know. 12, 13 years old and I was in a moment of discovery. So then I started hunting down and then Pitchfork happened. And then so and th- thus my taste came to be. I feel like so. I feel like I feel like Pitchfork was where you and I kind of like started to like very much <laughs> diverge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I definitely veered on the indie side while you were um, still um, staunchly into your heavier stuff, which yeah. I always appreciated and I still really do. Yeah, um, there's definitely like there's a divide in the Pitchfork era, I think. Um, and we'll get back to your list in a second, like because yeah. so we can get to your top five. But like there was a divide on Pitchfork where like they got really into this stuff, like the 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 Vampire Weekend, Wolf Parade, yeah, 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 as like Sunset mm-hmm. Rubdown, like that kind of indie side of stuff. Mm-hmm. And where they would also start to pimp like big progressive metal kind of like but more artsy kind of metal. So that's where they would like shit on tool for sure. Yeah, They would shit on tool, but they <laughs> would, they would blow ISIS. Like yeah. it was craziness. Right. Or like they would like loved early Mastodon. And that's where yeah. I started. And it was pitchfork where I started picking up on stuff like Jezu or ISIS mm-hmm. or Pelican or uh, Mastodon. Um, even and death, uh, heaven. death heaven. Yeah. Like that, they, that's that where that kind of schism started mm-hmm. to happen. So yeah. it was interesting. We're like, yeah, like, we were probably pretty common up until that point. And then you went into the 
auteur kind of indie side. And I was just mm-hmm. like, listen mm-hmm. to these crazy instrumental metal shit like that these right. guys are doing over here. So I, I think because I always glommed on to like um, folksier singers that like were storytellers, um, especially yeah. because I'm more like I'm an English literature major. So that's like I've always been to more poetry rather than like the um, technical music side because but at the same time, like I can appreciate the technical music side, which we'll get into our I, which seeks nicely into my number five, uh, yeah. which is The Idler Wheel by Fiona Apple. I would argue the technical musical side of this, but Are that's you okay. kidding me? Okay, so this is a very spare, jazzy album. Um, and this is Fiona Apple's uh, fourth, only fourth studio album. It's her most recent from 2012. Um, she's been around the music industry uh, for a really long time, since 1997. You know, she was, um, no, it was 1996, I think, when Title came out, the, her first album. And she was immediately seen as this kind of like heroin chic 90s alternative chick, even though she was like, because she was the she was a chick with a piano in the Lilith Fair era, but she was definitely on the darker side of stuff. Like, she oh, was man. No Sarah the- McLaughlin. The yeah. amount of play um, Criminal got back in the yeah. day, like yeah. in, at, least, at least in my circles, was like it was pretty heady how much like attention that song got back yeah. then. So and that I think that was that's still one of her defining songs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still it's still the one that was probably the only one that ever got her a top ten on Billboard or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she uh, on that on her first album, she definitely veered into this really dark place, and then these really like super ballady things, like Never Is a Promise. But as she her, her skills progressed, like she's a very talented musician um she does uh, she's clearly very good on the piano but she also does percussion too um and she's very she was very interested in jazz music while still maintaining this um, pop sensibility pop sensibility well kind of pop sensibility well as much as she could because her her idea of pop is like more cole porter from the 40s than it is you know stuff from her contemporaries from the 90s even though she kind of fit into the Lilith Fair era because she played the piano um, she definitely was an outlier of that era she was not she was like lyrically she was close to Tori Amos but stylistically very different at the same time so once these uh, she got more strange like she got less fan appeal but the critics started to love her more um and then so then the idler idler reel came out and no one was expecting it because it had been uh, seven years since the album before had come out. And she said that the album was done and that her record company was sitting on it. I still don't know if that's actually accurate or not, but either way, it's not um, an uncommon story, though. Like, yeah. It was too because they thought it was too weird. But as soon as it got released and the first single started coming out, like immediately the 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 Internet was in a frenzy like they were frothing at the mouth for this album. Um, And then uh, it got released and it ended up on almost every single top 10 list for that year for all the major music publications. Yeah, I'm looking Uh, at the the ratings and shit and they're like eight, nine, ten out of tens. Yeah, it's wow. It's it was it's her let like definitely her most spare musically album. Um, But 
lyrically speaking, it's probably her most raw. And this is coming from, you know, criminal girl, you know, um, she the she talks a lot about um, mental illness and um, her obsessive uh, ways and how a lot of the time in her uh, her songs previously, she had kind of been the victim in these relationships while she now starts to see um, her own flaws and cracks in her her psyche as she's, you know, going through these songs. And it's weird and it's poppy, but it's definitely not. And you can see these jazzy influences from like before the 50s. And you can see very modern spare indie rock influences from current era. And it just didn't sound like anything else that came out that year. I, I find it funny that you'll say poppy to this because I uh, and listening back to these albums, um, this was the album that I found the least accessible. Um, like immediately accessible. It is definitely something like if you probably put the time into it, it would be rewarding, but it is like yeah. at first glance, it is a tough sit to kind of like, like, I don't know, assimilate, yeah. I guess. So. Yeah, there, there are only a couple songs. There are a few songs on there that are very typical verse, chorus, verse structure. And she mm-hmm. works in that, that paradigm pretty much all the time. But, um, her delivery um, on some of these songs is like really her voice is really unique. We like we all know her deep, husky, like gravelly voice. Yeah. Smoker's voice. right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but like on the first the first two singles that got released were Every Single Night and Werewolf. And those are pretty typical pop songs. It's just that they're really, really scaled back in terms of uh, instrumentation. What she- yeah, her instrumentation was way pared back for this album because previously she used a lot of s- symphony. She used her piano. She used like big percussion sections, like big jazz band type things for Paper Bag on her second album. This was like minimalist percussion and a little bit of piano. And that was pretty much it. Maybe a little bit of banjo here and there. So... Yeah, it was it's a strange album, but even Kanye West was tweeting about it when it came out. He's like, holy shit, Fiona Apple. What the fuck? This is an amazing album. It was pretty cool to see like that. Everyone like no one knew that they missed Fiona this much, but they missed Fiona Apple. Was it like exclusive to title or something? Is that why that Kanye was all over it? (laughs) <laughs> it's it's yeah, funny well, how many uh, how many Kanye West references we've had this week. Um, yeah. I think on our, on our main episode, there's a, a Kanye West joke too. So, <laughs> yeah, this is one. I mean, I I stopped listening to Fiona Apple basically in the '90s. Like, I've got stuff off of uh, um, When the Pond, but uh, yeah, I I've I did not even know about this album and how well it was reviewed and stuff like that. So, might have to give it a look. Did you say a song? Like, what was your song pick? Oh, okay. So for Fiona Apple, um, I would pick Werewolf as the song to, like, get you into this album. Because it's still Fiona Apple with her piano. Um, It's still her pretty trademark lyricism. um, 
but it's a very surprisingly subdued track and it's um, it speaks a lot to what the themes of the album are, which are, you know, like um, kind of digging into why relationships fail and why she is a failure at relationships over and over again and kind of slowly discovering the kind of person that you are falling in love with over and over again and why it's bad um, and how you might work. You might really love a person, but how at the same time it's never going to work between the two of you. So it's like a real and she does manages to fit all of this feeling into a really Spare three minute piano track, and it's great. Cool. Fantastic. All right. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Now, number four. <laughs> number four The Miseducation of Lauren Hill by Lauren Hill. Oh, there we go. This, <laughs> there, there you go. There it is. Uh, <laughs> what I should, have, I should have done at the top of the episode was um, I, I want you all to take a note and like figure out what the common thread to Paul's uh, album choices are, and then we can come back at the top and talk about it. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the miseducation of Lauren Hill um, was like kind of revelatory to a lot of people, I think, because um, I don't think that there's really anyone quite like Lauren Hill since Lauren Hill was out. A black woman with a strong uh, voice that is very much not sexualized mm-hmm. um, in the way like and there's nothing wrong with sexualized black female voices at all. I love Nicki Minaj and Beyonce is kind of but Beyonce is working in a, a political spectrum that's a lot more aggressive than Lauren Hill was. Lauren Hill's album really speaks directly to black communities and what is imp- the values of those communities and her values while singing in some of the most amazing vocals I've ever heard and also some of the best rap verses I've ever heard. Um, this is still cited in the hip hop community as one of the most influential albums in hip hop yeah, from absolutely. the 90s. And uh, there's a good reason for that. She she is she was a triple threat. She was singer, rapper, uh, songwriter, quadruple threat because she acted too. Although you know, with an asterisk there, sister act too. But um, <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that completely. Yeah, she, Jennifer Love Hewitt was in that movie too. It was right. such. A, oh, that's right. That's where all those pictures of Jennifer Love Hewitt in Catholic school uniforms come from. Correct. <laughs> yeah, all those ones that Mark has on, above his bed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, on the ceiling next to the mirror. You know. Yeah. Uh, so um, this album was like just not like any because female rappers and. Uh, uh, just female pop singers. They were very split in that era. Um, there was like the really sexualized Lil Kim types in yeah. the rap era. There were the weirder indie types like Missy Elliott, who like also was really awesome and would end up on my top 20 list for sure. Um, but she was she was definitely like in her own world. She was bizarre. She was strange. She wasn't she didn't have the same kind of message because she was definitely doing club stuff. And Lauren Hill was she was kind of um, like almost like a preacher in like her in the hip hop community. She, like, she ended up was, being kind of like a mother figure, I think, to that community. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that uh, like I don't want to like 
speak over and speak to black communities and what, how they value stuff or whatever. But like this, a song like do wop that thing was it basically t- says like, here are the hypocrisies in the way that um, men behave and women behave in our community. And look, I also have had my issues too, but we need to figure this out because we're, weakening each other um she's talked a lot about the way that gender works um and she had even bigger ideas of what it was to be uh like a a valuable member of society in general and it's such a great pop album it's such a great hip-hop album it's like her vocals on doo-wop are so great um i like i have nothing but praise for this album um it's just uh, it, there's a reason it's still so influential and why um, it's still referenced uh, within the hip hop community, because I don't think I, there's still nothing like it um, since like I think the the only other major pop cultural icon that kind of fits into who Lauren Hill was was probably Nina Simone. Um as a like a political activist who is speaking directly to black communities in that way, in that in a way that white people kind of glommed onto and made it into mainstream success, um, like because there are definitely other female uh, uh, rap artists who are doing who did that and are doing that, but not in the way that Lauren Hill did or Nina Simone. Maybe Beyonce now, but not Beyonce when Lauren Hill was doing her stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 Definitely, definitely yeah. seminal hip hop album. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for song that I have. Oh, my God. Picking. This is one of those albums where it's a front to back amazing album and the singles were so good. Uh, but I have to pick. Um, everything is everything mm-hmm. for the the song that I choose because her, the the rap verse on it is perfect, uh, and the vocals uh, the vocal hook on it is spectacular. She that's peak Lauren Hill to me. It's the production on it is superb. Uh, the music video is really really cool. Where like it's New York, but it's a turntable, and oh, everything about it, just everything about it. Nice. Yes. And this is one that uh, ended up on a lot of like uh, decade end charts and stuff like that, like, you know, top yeah. top of the 90s kind of thing. So, yeah, it's still it's yeah, still being like examined and studied and and uh, uh, is still influencing a lot of the major hip hop artists mm-hmm. in our era. So, yeah, seminal album for sure. Nice. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Uh, we're into the top three now. So top three. OK, number three, Homogenic by Bjork. Not the um, Bjork album I would have picked, but uh, definitely good. OK, so, yeah, there's a lot of Bjork albums that like probably will end up on a top 100 list for me. Um, but this one, I think, is when Bjork really became the Bjork that we that critics know and love and um, really became the in the influencer that she is today. Um, Homogenic released the same year as OK Computer. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I I would argue that they're kind of like really good companion pieces to each other uh, because Radiohead kind of speaks to this really um, suspicious, this huge suspicion of technology and power, um, especially technology and how we interact with it. Um, whereas um, Bjork chooses to be empowered by technology and uses uh, like these really new DJ techniques and really in like things that people hadn't really done in the studio before to create this really loving, uh, empowering, uh, concept album. Cause she was trying to recreate the physical landscape of Iceland through the musicality of the album while creating these really like powerful, um, pop songs that synthesize uh, strings and electronics in a way that no one had really done before. So, uh, and people still haven't done well as well as Bjork to this day. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, really definitely good album. Hunter's an amazing song and definitely is a turning point for Bjork. Um, like definitely skews more towards the, uh, the electronic stuff than she, or, or more experimental kind of stuff than she did before. Um, yeah, yeah I don't know if it was, if I had to pick, uh, a Bjork album, it would probably be post or debut, but, uh, mm-hmm. but homogenic is a solid album as well. Yeah. Um, I, I love post and debut, uh, for sure, but I think that Bjork was still figuring herself out in terms of like what her, her signature was. Yeah. She's, there's definitely still a lot of the sugar cubes on debut, uh, in in particular. Yeah. And the early nineties club scene was like something that actually the, the lead singer of the sugar cubes was kind of salty towards Bjork and was like kind of, um, uh, kind of was uh, critical of her glomming on to the uh, the 90s club scene early on, the, the Euro dance and things like that. But I think that's where she picked up the skills that she needed to become what she is now. Um, and like when you think about auteur, uh, f- female solo artists, like especially like, well, in the pop realm, like Kate Bush and Bjork tend to be the two that people reference the most when it comes to like women who really had control over their own careers mm-hmm. and really were just geniuses in their own right. Um, so really. Uh, and this album is just like kind of fun while still being really dramatic and big and weird the way that Bjork is always big and dramatic and weird. Um, and I listened to this album a lot, um, like in high school, I think, um, I actually first got into Bjork because of, uh, it's so, oh so quiet as many people yeah. did. It's still her most famous song. Um, it's a cover, but <laughs> um, when it comes to like her albums, this and Vespertine are my two that I listen to the most. Vespertine's got some really good stuff on it as well. I mean, Bjork, mm-hmm. Bjork is a, an artist I don't listen to probably as much as I should, but I do have I'm just looking through. I've got the majority of her stuff like up until the 2000s, at least in iTunes, mm-hmm. in my iTunes library. Bjork's a Bjork's very much an artist that I've always had a problem like assimilating like her stuff like I can't there's something about it that 
off puts me that I can't get past for some reason. So. I mean, you've already admitted to not liking the uh, the more electronic stuff and liking That's more true. sort of organic music. So yeah, but all is full of love is a is a beautiful, beautiful song. I will admit, I saw her. Um, I saw her live. Oh, I can't remember when it was. It was like end of. The- it was in the Volta era, so that was around 2007, 2008. Yeah, I saw that she put on a fucking spectacular live show. Like, it was a really yeah, good show. I can imagine. But, yeah, like, her albums, I've always, I find them very difficult to navigate a lot of time. Yeah. So, or, like, yeah. Yeah. She talks, she talks very openly and sometimes awkwardly in her strange, stilted accent, which I adore so much. Um... <laughs> With that powerful voice behind it um, about like really uh, brutally feminine topics about like um, ch- childbirth, about like vulnerable femininity and stuff. And it's like for me, it gives me a glimpse into that life with and like a little bit of empathy towards that concept, while at the same time, just um, the musicality of it is so bizarre. It's really some an album that you can inhabit kind of in the same way that silent shout is a, an album that you can inhabit but not in a creepy way more in an uh a happy elevated way i guess <laughs> fair enough yeah and bjork is and, uh, a pretty pretty talented actress as well i mean her in dancer oh. in the dark was fucking amazing she got booed at Cannes for winning the Palme d'Or for that performance. Oh. And I am still shocked at that because I think that she was so good in that movie. Yeah. And that's actually um, the first time they she officially collaborated with Radiohead because Tom York yeah. and her did vocals on I've Seen It All. Yeah. Um, and d- Tom York by the way, loves Bjork, um, cited uh, Unravel from this from Homogenic as his favorite song of all time in 2006. Um, so like they have a lot of respect for each other. And actually, they were going to tour together in 1998 for OK Computer and Homogenic together, which in my mind, if I could go back in time and make something happen, oh, the the possibilities there would have been insane. Yeah. Um, but uh, they it never worked out because the um, Bjork and Radiohead both have very obviously distinctive stage shows, mm-hmm. and and Bjork has her costume changes and her symphony orchestra, and they couldn't make it work. So yeah, they just the, never the did changeover it. would have taken like two hours or something like that to get. Yeah, that's yeah, true. So that makes me sad, but um, I've seen both Radiohead and Bjork live, and oh my god, just great! I, and Bjork- I was I was at the uh, the OK Computer tour in uh, where did they play? Oh god, it was in Toronto. I don't remember where, like Opera House or something like that. It was a small show oh, wow. when they did yeah. that tour. Um, but it was uh, I can't imagine the two of them touring together, like in terms of like how stripped down the Radiohead stage presence tends to be versus what Bjork's stage setup is. Even when, like, when we saw her, it was at a festival and it was still, like, a mind-bogglingly elaborate amount of equipment that was on stage. Yeah, and the 30-piece brass orchestra for that tour in particular, all-women all, all trumpet and brass players yes. um, doing uh, doing rearrangements of previous songs. So it, things that would have been strings on homogenic were turned to brass and it still worked so well. 
oh, this is this is why a lot of people like for some reason, people don't think that Bjork is responsible for her own music and that she do, like leans on men to like do her arrangements. But she does all of her arrangements and then she brings in producers to do finishing touches. But a lot of people think it's the reverse and that she's not responsible for her own genius, which really pisses me off sometimes. But um this is my feminist rant, and I promise it, it will be the last. But like, <laughs> it's 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 not an uncommon story that like people are suspicious of how much women do in the in the studio when you have you know pop stars like Aaliyah who like kind of are just performers and singers, and that's fine. But when then you have your Kate Bushes, your Nina Simone's, your Bjorks, your Joanna Newsoms, who are um, like very much in control of their own creative work, and people are kind of like, "Well, who produced it? Because I bet they, she couldn't have done it by herself," kind of thing. And it's like, uh, "Fuck off!" But <laughs> Bjork is very much like a uh, a progenitor of like the DJ scene, and she is incredible. And this album, I think, is in some ways peak Bjork. Um, and for my song that I am picking, it is Yoga, the th- second track on the album, um, because it does what Bjork does so well. Um, it is the synthesis of strings and her electronic beats and big dramatic ideas and vocals that will like just knock your teeth out. So it all combines in this one particular song, in my mind, the most. Um, I think that maybe she has other tracks that are like now more interesting since that has been become her signature but that is really when i think of bjork and i want to introduce bjork to people this is the song i'm like it this you're if you don't like this you're not gonna like it kind of thing all right number two number two in the airplane over the sea by neutral milk hotel such a fucking amazing album this album kills me. It Wait, is this your first me. one with a male vocalist? Oh, no, we had uh, no. in, uh, Vampire Weekend Wolf Parade. Vampire Weekend Wolf Parade, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is my third. Uh, and this is also a uh, another album with a, uh, vo- a male vocalist who has a pretty mediocre voice overall. Mediocre uh, is being really fucking generous to this guy's voice, man. Like, but also yes. unique. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's also it distinctive. Is, yeah, and his vocal range is probably like half an octave. He strains on half of the notes that he sings, but he sings everything with such conviction. It, this album is he like he believes in every single note that he sings and plays on this crazy fucking album about like traveling through time to rescue Anne Frank from the Nazis. What the fuck is this album? <laughs> I don't know. It's so weird and so beautiful. Um I picked up this album before. This is pre-Pitchfork era. This was like 1998. This album came out, um, and it was like a weird, like, folky. But when when did thing. you actually get it? I got it in early 2000s. You, uh, you stole it from me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I bought I bought this album in 1999. Uh, yeah. When it started hitting, um, not so much like the Rolling Stone scene, but more the NME kind of like. Mm. Side chart attack chart and chart actually they promoted it a lot too um yeah it was it was an album it was an album that kind of came along yeah it was probably a chart review that i probably picked it up based on and then listened yeah. to it twice and just put it aside until you kind of picked it out of my collection 
Um, yes, that that album art, that distinctive yeah. album art with the the. Oh wow! Just yeah, I don't know. I remember there was. I remember. I remember there was. There was a. There was a handful of albums that I would. If I ever went looking for them and they were missing, I knew exactly where they were because you had come in and absconded them from my room. Um, oh yeah, for sure. I remember, yeah, I remember there, a I remember, few of them. I remember this one was one of the ones that I didn't really care that you had grabbed. That was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. I remember there were a few that you were like, "Oh my god, he has my perfect circle album." Well, yeah, that was. But, I, I actually yeah. told that story on the podcast because um, that and White Pony had come out on the same day, and yeah. the reason why I ended up getting so into the Deftones record, like the White Pony album. Was because every time I wanted to listen to Perfect Circle, <laughs> Paul fucking had my copy of Madden Null. So I just listening. like, yeah, listening to Three yeah. Libras on repeat or whatever you were yeah. doing, right? So uh, I did, and Judith too. So and, and so Judith. I would I would end up going over and like, I'll just listen to the Deftones again, and that's like where that kind of divided. And when you got really pissed at me, I remember um, the uh, I made a tape of the full album twice on one side and on the other side. It was just three Libras and Judith again and again yeah. for the entire length of the tape. What I, so, what I remember yeah. specifically was when you made that tape, you didn't have your own stereo yet and therefore had to sit in my room for 90 minutes while you did it. <laughs> That's true. Um, also correct. Yeah. But it, oh, but neutral family. Hotel, yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, but in the airplane over the sea, um, it was an album that has kind of grown along with me as my as a a, a kind of a, a symbol of what my musical taste is because it is very writerly, it is very folksy, but has a lot of rocky influences, but also a lot of weird instrumentation that mm-hmm. uh, that kind of bursts out of nowhere. Um, I. Um, I don't know. It's an album that when you are talking to like um, lower to middle class white guys about indie music, um, you like you talk to them and you're like, oh, you like this, too. And and then you knew that you at least had that baseline of, well, we both like neutral milk hotel. So we we can we can talk kind of thing. And um, I made a like. And that's not a bad thing. Like, it's a good like it was very much one of those albums. Um, But it is like oddly difficult to listen to sometimes. Um, It's I don't know. I can pretty much always listen to the King of Carrot Flowers. Yeah. And it's not that like the the only song I have trouble with. Weirder Weirder, though. Yeah. For me, it's O Comely. Yeah. Like I, I like O Comely in theory, but in practice, I feel that it goes on so long that like it becomes uncomfortable. But then eventually we get into uh, uh, King of Carrot. I mean, uh, two and boy or two. And that it's all forgiven. So um, this uh, this album is a very like sensitive, weird portrayal of like young love and growing up. And it's folksy and it's really earnest and people will absolutely despise this album in (laughs) some ways because it's so it's so indie in that so emo kind of way. But it is but it's it's got a strangeness to it that keeps it fresh to me and always has like it's kind of timeless. Yeah, I agree. And and time being such an important theme in that album, I think, is why it's it's lasted as long as it has. Like, there's a lot of ideas of, like, um, keeping things in your memory and um, like nostalgia uh, and 
I don't know. It's it's really beautiful, but it's so odd. It's just an odd album, and it shouldn't be as popular as it is, but it is, and I'm glad that it is. Well, it's not even. So. Well, it's it's even hard to call it popular. Like it's it's very well known in certain circles, right? Like it yeah. never yeah. Hit, hit any had any sort of mainstream appeal whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it's got a it's got yeah. um record collector kind of like geek cred yeah. niche kind of mm-hmm. um yeah recognition right like it's got that like guys like us know this record you know what i mean i may not yeah. particularly enjoy it but like if somebody says neutral milk hotel i will be like yeah okay that album like i know what you're talking about so mm-hmm. yeah yeah and um i was lucky enough to see uh this album live on the reunion tour oh uh, nice and the Jeff Mangum solo shows as well. So um, when he was playing at Trinity St. Paul's Church in Toronto, it was it was a religious experience. There were tears. I bet. Just yeah, a lot of people. This this album means a lot to a lot of people. Um, oddly enough, like it's it, like just because it's one of those record nerd niche things. Like it's it, it, people attach a lot of feeling to it, um, and. I think rightly so. I think it's like it's worth it. I think this album is like technically really amazing. Yeah, it's a, the the only criticism would be Jeff Mangum's voice, and even then, it, it, his passion sells it. So. Yeah, exactly. His his uh, his delivery is maybe not refined, but it's definitely um, there's definitely a lot of intent behind it. And, yeah. and think about it. I mean, nobody was putting out anything. We, we've talked about albums like this before where nobody was putting out anything like that at the time. And OK Computer was one of those albums. This album yeah. in 1998 was fucking like three or four years ahead of its time. Easily. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And had a massive impact on like, you know, you can name any band that came, you know, any indie band that came out in the early 2000s and they had a massive impact like fucking like yeah. Arcade Fire and shit like that. Arcade Fire was yeah. like huge debt to Neutral Milk Hotel. I agree. Wolf Parade definitely does yeah. too. That whole, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I would say that like if this, this is like the the proto Pitchfork album. Like, yeah. Before, this is like yeah. Pitchfork wouldn't exist if not for this album. Yeah, I was just gonna say I'm like this yeah. is like the the Pitchfork album trope codifier. Like this is the album that like yeah. when like when Pitchfork is like writing an album review, it, it's almost like this album comes up a lot in their reviews in comparison to mm. stuff. Like this is an album mm. where they're like. Yeah. We compare this to Neutral Milk Hotel because that's yeah. just the part of like that's how we filter information almost. Yeah, it's like, the lens yeah. that we see indie like, indie albums indie, through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and oddly enough, um, they didn't give it like they gave it like an eight point something when it first came out, but like when they retroactively reviewed it, they gave it a ten out of ten. Yeah, um, eight point seven in nineteen ninety eight and ten out of ten in two thousand five. Yeah. Uh, Pitchfork notorious for. Like especially early on for their reviews being, uh, yeah, their early reviews, yeah. 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 Although, it's, although the, some of them, some of the really harsh ones have been on point, and I point to the um, the second Jet album where the review <laughs> is just a monkey kissing into its own mouth. Um, <laughs> that I thought was a piece of journal- music journalistic brilliance that <laughs> I still remember. Pitchfork's always a, a publication that makes me roll my eyes because they're also they're like they're. I don't, all up their own fucking asses. Yeah, they're all up their own asses. Yeah. Like this, this is a publication or a website. So I don't even really like calling it a publication because it's just a website um, that that like has shit on some amazingly huge acts just because they weren't cool enough 
anymore to them. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like then they give Lateralis a two. Like that, that's the one I'm, yeah. I'm the saltiest about. Like it's always yeah. Like, you're, you're, I, this is salt. Yeah. This is so much. Salt. Yeah. <laughs> the they, price of salt because they they shit on stuff that I love, and I'm just like. Okay, yeah. you, you don't like this because it doesn't ascribe to your weird niche, like up its yeah. own ass kind of intellectualism or whatever. So. PBR Parliament smoking thick glasses aesthetic yeah, yeah, from so. the early 2000s. American spirit smoking. Yeah, yeah, they're really yeah. they're super hilarious though because like they they'll retrospectively come back around on bands. Like, um, yeah. I remember around like when they launched around 2003, like when they started getting big, they shit on yeah. self like the Deftones self titled album. Yeah, and now they cover the Deftones constantly. Like I'm like, yeah. that's where the Deftones became the Deftones they are now. Like that kind of yeah. artsy metal band, and you yeah. shit on that record. And now, like 10, 15 years later, every time they do something or Chino has a project coming up, the first time I hear yeah. about it is from Pitchfork, and I'm like, that is so <laughs> weird, so yeah. weird. Look, same with pop artists too. I mean, like they like when the Poptimist movement came out, like in the like late two thousands when pop stars became cool to like again, and Indian like uh, like indie uh, fans were like, I can like Beyonce too. It's totally okay. Like Pitchfork was all over that mm-hmm. too. Like whereas in the early two thousands, if, if they covered Beyonce, it would be in like a really snide, kind of scathing way. Yeah. <laughs> now they're like, anyway. well, yes, she is a pop culture phenomenon, so you can't ignore her let's, anymore. Let's and, um, let's also not let's also not like be like beat around the bush too much about the fact that like that's going to get them clicks and that's what the end of the day for that kind of place is yeah. always all about yeah. is like and and they're owned by Condé Nast now yeah. so mm. <laughs> all right now that we've shit on shit down pitchforks throat a little bit that made me feel a lot better yeah <laughs> all right uh, so num- oh song yeah song for in the airplane over the sea um i there are a lot of great songs on this album but my favorite is ghost um because it is a song that uh just uh i like songs that that crescendo really big and i think that ghost is the song that does this the best on the album it's one of the longer songs it's definitely got the like kitchen sink production value where there's like every single instrument playing all at once. Um, and it's, but it starts off with this really just simple, fast guitar riff um, and Jeff Mangum's vocals. And then it just gets really, really big. And the imagery in it of uh, like Born in a Bottle Rocket, just huge song. Great. Fantastic. So I'm speaking like Donald Trump, uh, like a Donald Trump tweet right now. So I apologize. <laughs> but so it's so good. And it is uh what I everything I love about that album in that song. All right, awesome. Yeah. All right, so the the time has come. Uh, we're we're uh, finally down to Paul's number one album. This is going to be the one we're going to have some talk now. Like, <laughs> okay. uh, I know, I know what's coming. All right, okay, my Paul's my number, number one, one album. album is East by Joanna Newsom. East is a fifty-five minute. Magnum opus, five <laughs> songs of um, a, you know, Kate Bushian indie folk singer playing the harp uh, and caterwauling about a lot of stuff. And it is one of the most magical pieces of music I have ever heard in my entire life. And it, you, this is one of the most love it or hate it albums I've ever come across. Um, but uh, before we like, you know, I 
let me praise it before you guys start your <laughs> shit storm. I like this is because I know you I know it's coming. Um, this is a uh, an album that was uh, a few years in conception. Um, she uh, Joanna Newsom is like a rather um, uh, she was part of what was called the freak folk movement and uh, led by Devendra Banhart and the uh, early mid 2000s um animal collective are considered part of this mm-hmm. as well uh, the decemberist kind of um it was folk music that was definitely influenced by a lot of pop and electronic stuff um but she got kind of shoehorned into this because she was she played the harp and her voice was really weird um uh, but she didn't really fit into what the other guys were doing very much. Um, she was very much her own thing. And if we're talking about albums that sounded nothing else like what was happening in that time, 2006, no one expected an album like East. This is an album of like 10 to 17 minute um, orchestral epics about which like are mostly written in uh, what's what are called heroic couplets um, in a very traditional poetic sense while still talking about very modern concepts of femininity uh, with production from Van Dyke Parks of Smile fame and uh, Steve Albini who uh, produced Nirvana and PJ Harvey. So like there's a lot of weird disparate influences happening in this album and it was really critically acclaimed um and uh the fans of joanna newsom are they're not it's not a large (laughs) group of fans but they are some of the most religiously devoted people i have ever seen like in internet communities and things like that i don't think that joanna newsom really has casual listeners so i would it would be almost next to impossible to listen to this stuff casually (laughs) it is yeah um joanna newsome uh because i obviously paul's my brother and like we share music a lot um joanna newsome is somebody that comes up a lot when he's talking about music and it's something that i've tried again and again to like acclimate to or listen to and appreciate and like while i appreciate the lyricism and stuff like that that goes on. There's almost nothing else about it that I find appealing. It's Mm. she, her vocal style is, especially in the early stuff, like childish Mm -hmm. almost like it's really hard to listen to. And then even when she kind of smooths that out, her delivery (laughs) never gains any kind of like, I don't know, character or anything like that. It's, it's, (laughs) it's such a hard listen all the time. For me, anyway, I don't know. And, like, I appreciate the, like, prowess and instrumentation and stuff like that that she does. Like, playing the harp's not an easy fucking task. It's a big instrument. She's a tiny Mm -hmm. girl. Like, it's kind of crazy that she's as proficient at it. Literally, just, like, I don't even want to be, like, I know this is going to turn into a sexist thing, but, like, she is so little that playing such a massive instrument is almost hard. I can almost be, like, that would be hard to do for me, and I'm six foot five. Like, being able to reach across it, and she plays it so well. But at the same time, I'm, like, she doesn't do anything on these albums that makes me go like, I really want to listen to this again. I, I listen to it almost out of duty to my brother sometimes just to like <laughs> yeah. try and get through it. Yeah. I, but yeah, um, sorry. I'm, and like, it is, it is something that is like notably love it or hate it. Like she is a, 
like massively there is no middle ground with Joanna Newsom. Either you're like in the vast majority that's like, I don't get this. Or you're in that small subculture that is like, this is my religion now. <laughs> and like, cult of Joanna. First. I thought I was going to say, and like when she starts a cult and Paul disappears into that cult, I will understand what's going on. But like, <laughs> I will try and come yeah. and rescue you. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like Joanna fans don't have a sense of humor about like who she is and like how weird she is and why this shouldn't work but it does for us kind of thing like um there's uh i belong to two facebook groups about joanna one is like a straight up news group that like tracks her uh her live performances and things like that and the other one is a shit posting group where we make <laughs> jokes about her and like we do like memes about like how sh- she hates bananas and uh, the, the weird faces that she makes when she sings like she makes really fucking weird faces when she sings I can imagine um, based on like yeah. the fucking vocals she's gotta be contorting her fucking face in some weird ways she gets and a, she, does, she is the best example of uh what what we like like drummers call drummer face <laughs> um that is not a drummer you know what I mean like she makes yeah. There's there's, yeah. there's actually I, I belong to another Facebook group that's not related to Joanne Newsom at all, but it's like a drummer kind of thing. And like occasionally it'd be like pictures of like it'd be selfies of guys or not selfies, but like pictures of them of guys who are playing drums and making fucking awful concentration. Like yeah. I'm taking a huge shit faces while they're trying to do a fill. Yeah. And it's funny where Joanna Newsom has that same kind of thing. But it isn't yeah. playing. Is it playing drums? <laughs> yeah, the, the drummer in my high school band. He would actually, um, when he was doing like a roll or something like that, he would follow his uh, sticks with his tongue. Yeah, so oh, okay. Like on the snare, you go like from left to right, kind of thing. Down to the toms. It was hilarious. Yeah, there's that's something that's something that I've trained myself. I I used to get criticized for being like people thought I hated everything like every band that i was in everybody thought i hated playing with them because i was your expression because i was completely either impassive or grimacing the entire time because i'm either <laughs> concentrating on playing or i'm not paying attention at all like i i look like i'm not paying attention at all so i had trained my face to go blank while i was playing drums <laughs> so that i didn't make those faces but even then there's still some like early Facebook pictures of me playing at bars in St. Catharines where I'm making like a really horrifying face as I go through a fill or something like that. But that's pretty funny. So for me, my experience with Joanna Newsom is a lot more recent than Mark. So like I've heard about her for years and years, but until Mark sent me Paul's top five list, I had, I, I was like, I'd never actually heard it. And then like Paul or Mark was telling me, like, we're going to have to talk about this because Paul just fucking is up joining Newsom's ass so hard. So (laughs) (laughs) he's going to he's going to fucking gush about it. You might as well go ahead and listen to it. So I listened to about half of East's. Which I would have fucking pronounced yes, because it's, <laughs> it's a fucking Y and an S. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I mean, it's not. Pre, it's yes. It's not accessible. It's it's the harp on its own is somewhat soothing, but I can't get into into her vocals. Really, they're just so strained. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's the sort of thing that that maybe if I gave it another couple listens, I might be able to yeah. get into a little bit more. But like, 
Yeah. You you said it yourself. It is fucking like twelve minutes straight of like caterwauling on every song. <laughs> yeah. And I like that you. I but, actually really appreciate that he used caterwauling because that is a word that I was going it's to the use. Perfect. perfect. I was going to use yeah. it as a pejorative, right? Like I was going to come back out and say like she sounds like she's caterwauling in a very negative way, but he took that word from me. And it yeah. Ruined it. Took it back. You fucking yeah. ruined it. Well, no, because because her caterwauling to me is like this really bewitching thing. And you know what? I like. Like, we just praise Jeff Mangum for his, like, half-octave range and how he strains <laughs> on every note. But, like, Joanna no, wait, Newsom wait, doesn't get a pass you, on this. No, you fucking, you guys did. I was <laughs> against that, too. Yeah, so. okay. See, I'm so in I, that case. I'm willing to look more past it because I love orchestral pop, and that is really yeah. neutral. Moko tells amazing fucking orchestral, like, chamber pop kind of stuff, whereas yeah. this is... Not orchestral folk that. no is, not it's yeah. not orchestral folk it's harp folk there's no yeah. orchestra <laughs> there uh, there's a full orchestra on four of the five songs uh. and, and the orchestration is done by van dyke parks who is okay. was on brian Wilson's smile i will give you like props on that van dyke parks is yeah amazing and uh, like, like very her, again, this is another situation where like the arrangements were done by Joanna Newsom, and then he came in and like tweaked things because like she was very much like every instrument needs to be uh, like non-electronic. But he said like, like no, if you want this sound, you need an electronic bass, and she had to make some concessions. Like, there's like uh, a lot of. Um, story behind the making of this album that I find really interesting because obviously I've like read every single interview about it um, but this album is really fascinating because it's about like a particularly traumatic year in her life um, and the the lyrics speak to that in a kind of um, grand way that it takes something like a personal trauma and especially a personal trauma in a woman's life that would typically be Silenced, And I think it, like people theorize that it was like an abortion or a miscarriage and it turns it into epic poetry. And this is something that um, hasn't been done before. And in 2006, she took she took every single feeling that she had. She she journaled it. She quantified it. She gave it a name and a word and a voice. And she didn't like outsource her singing to someone else. She it needed to be her doing it. And so it's I think it's the same with Jeff Mangum, where it's like it wouldn't be quite as true coming from someone else. Um, and so that's why I think East is such an important album. Like this woman who has such these huge ideas about music um, and lives very much in her own world. Like she she does. She has pretty obvious influences from before in like the like 70s Joni Mitchell era, Kate Bush for sure, Bjork. Um, but also like very classical influences like Debussy that um, speak to the way that she plays the harp and the piano. Um, she only exclusively plays the harp on this album, but plays the piano on her later stuff and her earlier stuff. Um, but East is a very singular 
experience. And it it I think it created this cultish devotion because it was doing something that, you know, like not a lot of people would try to empathize with um, because it's it's weird. And she's living in her own headspace. And this is something that might be very beautiful to her that obviously is not very accessible to a lot of people. That's and that's OK. But like when it comes to the people who love it, we love it for a reason. I, I mean, like uh, the it, like the the emotions that I feel when I listen to in the airplane over the sea, like that they're they're pretty strong. But when I listen to East, like I I embody an entire like like I I'm like shut down and I'm listening to it. Like I've never. I've I've had that experience with some albums like the first time I've listened to it, but almost every time I listen to this album, I'm drawn in and that's it's power over me and over a lot of people. But again, not over everyone. A lot of a lot of people may be overstating the case a little bit, I think, little brother. But (laughs) is there a selection of people, maybe a better (laughs) phrase to use than that? Yeah. okay. But for those people like this is a seminal and important album. And like, I think that Joanna Newsom, like in the indie sphere, has already been very influential, like songwriters, um, have cited her as why they've gotten into music like Grimes uh, or the Dirty Projectors, things like that. Like they've said, like uh, the Milk Eyed Mender or Easer, like one of the reasons that because they they saw that what pop could turn their lives or like music could turn their lives into. And it's just a yeah, I know it's not. This is an album that I can't recommend to people anymore. Like it frustrates me when people don't like it or it used to frustrate me when people don't like it. But then I just stopped recommending it. And I like it's something that you have to come to on your own. Um, And if you don't like you don't like it. If you do, you do. But like I can't I can't I've had my heart broken before by people who like I really we shared a lot of musical interests. And then I've tried to get them to listen to Joanna Newsom and they're just like, what the fuck? (laughs) Again, no, like guys, I've uh, guys I've dated and stuff like that. Like we'll, we'll be like, oh, yeah, we like all these same bands. Let's listen to this and this and this and this. And then I'm like, hey, have you ever heard of Joanna Newsom? I say with hope in my heart it's that almost like always gets dashed on the rocks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Every and, it, and it's not always like I've I've introduced good friends to Joanna Newsom who have like and I like for uh, you should also my note, brother knows you also should note that you uh you and your friends almost died going to see her uh at one point. <sighs> Yes, we did. Um, so, and actually, we, can we say, were, you can just say hello to Becky and Kelly because they are listening to the podcast. So, hi, Becky and Kelly, my fellow Joanna Newsom, my Janu posse. Like we all, is that, we all is that have the, a, what the fans call themselves? J- no, um, we actually for the people who are really uh, hardcore, Joanna Newsom kind of accidentally uh, bequeathed. The, the name onto us. They, we're called Delvers. Um, the, when it sounds uh, like a fucking Ren fair. So pretentious. <laughs> I know, right? It's like we're. I was just gonna say this sounds like some kind of weird sex thing that would go on at Renaissance Fair. I don't like delving. I'm going to delve you, yeah. lady. Like <laughs> to delve into your mysterious mysterious depths. <laughs> yes. 
Oh, I love it. And he's wearing tights and a fucking feathered hat. And pointy shoes. Mm. And pointy shoes. Mm. And a velvet vest. <laughs> oh. All fair, but it was uh, it was about the people who um, as soon as any type of like even a live recording, as soon as that that comes up, it's immediately it's the lyrics that need to be dissected. Like people who just like start like they she is such a referential artist, like she makes so many allusions to different pieces of art, music, um, history, politics in one song that um, people will trace will have to wikipedia multiple things just to trace every reference within one song because one of the things about joanne newsom is that she's really bookish and it's one another reason why like people enjoy listening to her is like the way that she interprets um uh other pieces of art and integrates it into her songs is really fascinating like in one part of only skin the 17 minute song on East, she references the myth of Sisyphus, um, where but she does it in this really tongue of cheek way where she's somewhat mocking um, her lover who is um, leaning on drugs to get through his uh, his depression and things like that. And it's like she'll do these things in such a casual way, like, holy shit, she just referenced the myth of Sisyphus while rhyming it with sassafras. And like she it's like and for some people, they would look at that and be like, what the fuck pretentious? And for some people were like, ah, yes, always, do more, I, please. And this is something I think I've, I've, I've made fun of Paul when it comes to Joanna Newsom for before, where it is it is she is such a English majors wet dream yeah. of a yeah. pop star or whatever I don't even say pop mm. star but like musician um, where like like you have those conversations and I've had lots of these conversations because Paul is my brother and working at the newspaper and stuff like that I had a, a lot of contact with these how do I how do I put this gently um, pretentious assholes. pretentious assholes uh, of English majors <laughs> that uh, would sit around over many beers and talk about shit like this like it was even that interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've been around Alicia talking with other people yeah. at Tolkien stuff, and it's the same same sort yeah. of thing. So yeah, it's everyone has their you know little niche, like it, like because I'm sure like Tim, like your love of DC is something I'll never quite understand. <laughs> uh, and with Mark, like some of his like love of drumming and like the like his ability to talk about like percussion on metal stuff um like i get it like i understand it like i know dc i've listened to the music that mark listens to but like the things that he gloms onto will also make me like fucking flatline while i'm uh trying to listen <laughs> and so when i like go into like the the rhyming couplets of joy and i know i know i know that it's a fucking dial tone for everyone else uh, <laughs> unless unless you've studied literature and poetry i get that but for me it's like it it like it it, it turns on it revs my engine and melts my butter you know like <laughs> it's kind of gross so actually I've, yeah, I do I, have. It was intended to be. <laughs> I do have artists that are like that as well. Like that, I know the lyrics are somewhat like pretentious and maybe not super accessible. Like for me, the one that jumps into my head would be like the weaker thans. Like yeah. they, mm. they they speak in a lot of imagery and stuff like that, and it's not particularly yeah. accessible, especially if you're not fucking Canadian. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so, um, but I still I just fucking love it, and I and I love it because of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Weaker Thans are a band that I I adore, so I've always liked the Weaker Thans yeah. quite a bit. I find um, I think uh, I think the Nationals kind of like that for me, where like I'll just kind of sit and like with the lyric sheets more so than anything else. Like that's that's mm-hmm. that band. So, and that's like a recommendation I make to people if they're like if they're in if they've heard something of Joanna Newsom's that's intrigued them, I say like sit down with the lyric book and like because that's a, a lot of the joy of it comes from the illusions that she makes and her wordplay is something. Uh, it's definitely like really academic and high level. So like I'm not saying that you have to be smart to enjoy it or that like I'm better than you for because I can understand <laughs> it. It's that's not it. But that's what you're but saying. It just, no, it's just. <laughs> Like, it's like if you like stamp collection, like good for you kind of thing. If you like analyzing fucking Joanna Newsom lyrics again, good for you kind of thing. It's just like that's the the kind of training that I've had because I've done literary analysis all throughout university. So it's like it's something I pick up on easily, but it's like it's I, I find it fun. So, you know. But I also find a lot of things fun that, you know, people might find. Awesome. It's so twee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's it like is pe- fucking peak twee. Yeah. Peak twee. Peak <laughs> twee. All right. Uh, we are, uh, we're, we're, all, we're well over two hours now. Um, There's <laughs> a little choppy chop is going to have to happen, but we're, we're, we're at the two hour mark. So let's, um, let's wrap this show up and, uh, I should probably do. Oh, I have to pick my song on East oh. before we do Can, that. Like, is, yeah, is which, it which of the five 12 minute tracks? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Which of the five? Very good question because people fight over, and the Joanna Newsom communities fight over this a lot. But for me, I have to go with the one that doesn't have a lot of orchestration. It's just her and her harp. It's called Sawdust and Diamonds. Um, it's just a, it's her, her harp, and a lot of words. And uh, it's, 10 minutes straight through of her blazing on the harp. If you ever, I recommend watching a live video Can of her just, playing. Hold the on, song. hold on. Blazing on the harp. <laughs> <laughs> like she's fucking Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> and, I, and you laugh, but watch her play it on the video. Like, look how fast her hands move Ooh, over the, okay. the strings. It's, it's technically mar- marvelous to watch. Right. So, and this is a song, um, she has an interview where she talks about like in a dream, she saw like the top of a staircase and this is where, um, like her concept of eternity comes from and things like that. It's super duper pretentious. <laughs> Listen to it. It's fantastic. Hey, okay. Sawdust uh, and this is, this is an atypical fucking dance robot dance question, but like how hard are you right now? <laughs> like, <laughs> Like three like, quarters of a stock, like 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 not like nine I would, p.m. nine thirty. Yeah, like I'm one hundred and ten percent. You know, <laughs> like all right. Yes. So I will come, say, Sawdust and Diamonds. I, I mean, out of all the songs I listened to, was the least inaccessible. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. I think that's damning with fate praise. <laughs> that's uh, our specialty here. Yeah, that's that's the yeah. robot dance like motto. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. So that was really fun. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you've made it into two hours of Paul ranting about his <laughs> feminist auteur top ten favorite albums of all time. Um, yeah, girl. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was what I was I wanted to make note of was like your uh, ability to either glom onto horrible fucking vocalist on the male side or <laughs> women auteurs. Um, I, I mean, I'm this. I love female vocalists as well. It hasn't come across on my uh, list as much because I don't have the same. 
most of the like album artists that I really appreciate are more male artists, but I definitely do. Uh, I'm with you very much on the female vocalist love. Mm-hmm. Well, you picked Cindy Lauper as one. No, of no, no. Right? That was, was that, that was Mark. That was other Mark. Mark. That was Mark. Oh yeah. Okay, that was other yeah, Mark. No. I've, I, that was like a weird thing where I'm like, I was listening to a lot of Cindy Lauper at the time, and like, oh yeah, good call. But <laughs> um, yeah, there's. Uh, I did notice in like the other top ten list that there was a dearth of female artists, and I didn't pick my favorites as a result of that. I just knew that it was going to stand in kind of stark, stark contrast. contrast. Yeah. Well, let's be yeah. let's be fair. I had Arcade Fire and uh, Postal Service on mine, and both of those have some. Songs that are either led have lead female vocalists or like duets yeah. with female vocalists, and it should be also yeah. it should also be noted that I am the uh, podcast resident woman hater. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Um, but yeah, so uh, either way, I, it was fun. I knew I knew I would have to defend Joanna, but like <laughs> I've, I've I readily accept the criticisms because like you're not wrong. We we just have different ears. So, sounds you know? like you've got plenty of experience in that anyway. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's let's wrap this show up. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, you can subscribe to Dance Robot Dance on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store, or anywhere else you get your podcast love from. Uh, you can give us a like on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash Dance Robot Dance podcast you can follow us on twitter at drd underscore podcast or you can send us an email um either praising or disparaging joanna newsom in equal measure preferably <laughs> disparaging because paul won't see it and we'll laugh um you can email us at dance robot dance podcast at gmail.com um so i'm mark i was your host tonight tim's gonna say good night I see you've been practicing. <laughs> and, uh, from Korea, my little brother Paul. Say Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. So we'll, yeah, my pleasure. We'll probably do another one of these once we get back up into doing our like continuing album stuff. And then I, I don't know, whenever Paul moves back to Canada, we'll see about having him on the show more often, I guess, because this <laughs> has been a lot of fun. And I know at some point, Christy's going to be like, I don't want to do this album shit anymore. And like, <laughs> it's always nice to have that third voice, even if it isn't a girl. So <laughs> be a you lot of fun. get a vocal feminist gay man instead. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, there just, we'll just trade one feminist for another. Thing. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Next best thing. All right. Yeah. All right, guys. The B team. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, have a good one.